0: I love that hymn. It really points to what we were looking at in the previous hour. When the kingdom of God comes in all its fullness, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and there will be excitement and glory in heaven as we look and point to the Savior and bow before Him in joyful adoration and worshipful praise, giving glory and honor to His most holy name. And thankfully, the day is coming when that will be so. And Pastor Nicholas, he has prayed what was in my heart, so we're going to go right into the preaching. As he prayed, I prayed with him, and trust that the Lord will be gracious to us. And... For this morning, as I have, this is a continuation of what we considered last week, namely the theme of our plans and God's will. Our plans and God's will. And we saw that planning is a reflection of God, our Creator, that is, we as creatures, we are created in the image of God. And when you sit down to make a plan, you're expressing the fact that you are made in God's image because God created the world by plan. God has a plan of salvation and sending Jesus into this world. And so we reflect that in our lives when we make plans to do things. And then we saw that Our plans are subject to God's wisdom. Although we make a plan, it's a good plan. We thought it out. We worked out all the details. Yet, the outcome is determined by God. A man's heart devises his way, but the Lord directs his steps. Proverbs 16, verse 9. And unless the Lord builds the house, they that labor... Labor in vain that build it, Psalm 127. And then we consider that we must not trust in our plans. We may have a good plan. We may feel pretty good about the plan, pretty confident about it. It's a great plan, and our friends agree with us, but we must not trust in our plan. We must trust in God alone because God, he will determine according to his wisdom, and everything hinges upon this, if the Lord will. We saw in James chapter 5 where James says, Go to now you that say that we will go into such and such a city, buy, trade, sell, and get gain. In other words, we have a business. We're going to travel to this city. We're going to put out our product. We're going to make contacts and then... This city is a very profitable place, and our business will flourish, and we got this five-year plan, and we're going to make profits. He said, whoa, whoa, slow down. For you ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live, and then do this or that or the other. So it's a, it's a sinful boasting to boast in our plans and not have any trust in God or recognition that God will determine all the outcomes of our plans. So our boast must not be in our plans but in God alone. And then we saw some applications, some thoughts that these truths will keep us from dealing, will help us to deal with disappointment. We all have experienced disappointment. We made a plan, we had a desire, and it blew up and it fell apart. Well, these truths will help us deal with disappointment because you know that God is in control and God is working these things out. And then we also noted that these truths will keep us from pride because let's say every time we make a plan, it works out. It works out just as we planned it. We may begin to think we're pretty smart. We may Maybe we should write a book about this. Maybe we should have a blog and post it on YouTube because, hey, people need to learn what I'm doing because I'm pretty smart. Oh, no. These truths will keep us from pride because if our plans come to pass, it only comes to pass because God brought it to pass. Not because we have planned it or we're great planners. And then we also noted that these truths will help us grow in contentment. Now, I did preach the sermon on contentment prior to last week, but that contentment sermon belongs in this mini-series, if you will. So these truths will help us grow in contentment because no matter what the outcome of our plan, contentment, Is has nothing to do with our plans. Contentment has nothing to do with our plans because our contentment comes from God. So whether we are abounding, whether we are base, whether we have little, whether we have plenty, it doesn't matter. You know why? Because God is enough. God is enough. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside you. Psalm 73. My heart and my flesh fail, but God is the strength of my life and my portion forever. And Paul says in Philippians 4, I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. And I tell you, my brothers and sisters, the contented Christian is the happiest man on earth. And the contented Christian is a beautiful display of the grace of God. And so if you are content, it's a win-win. Everything is a win-win. Because you know that God's hand is in it all. And so this morning we come to consider another aspect of our plans and God's will, and that is the providence of God. The providence of God. Now, I've mentioned about the providence of God along the way, but we're going to focus a little bit more upon it today. And this is more or less applicatory, application, exhortation, if you will. When it comes to our plans, we must always factor in the providence of God. And by God's providence, I'll read what I read last week. Our confession puts it nice and neat and tidy. The providence of God is God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, does uphold direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and all things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence. In other words, <clears throat> God is in control of everything. When that bee come buzzing around, stings you on the shoulder, God was in control of that. From the tragedies of mudslides, even the tragedy we think of the Twin Towers. That didn't happen outside of God's control. That was all in God's providence. From graduation day, from walking down that aisle and getting married and saying, I do, from the blessing of children and grandchildren, all things, God is in control. He is the creator of all things. And he governs all these things according to his power, his wisdom. He does, in other words, God knows what he's doing and he makes no mistakes. And God's providence is everything that occurs in this world, even down to a virus called Corona. Corona. God is in control of that too. So as we think about God's providence and and our plans, okay, we make our plans. Remember, God's providence. The outcome or whatever the result of our plans, and also I want to say this. God may give us the desire that we seek to accomplish in our plans, but he may do it in a different way. Or he may do something entirely different. Because his ways are not our ways. And so whatever the outcome or whatever the result may be, providence is to be embraced by faith. We ought to embrace God's providence by faith. Not complain. Not murmur. Not accuse God of not doing it right, whatever it may be, we must embrace this because we don't understand everything. We don't know everything. And even as pastor prayed, God knows us better than we know ourselves. And he knows what is best for us. And God is faithful. We're going to get into more more of that. But we must embrace providence by faith. That is, we must have a complete Readiness to accept whatever God brings in our lives. To be ready to say, okay, God is God. And I dare not question God. And if God has brought this into my life, whatever it may be, then I know this is from the hand of God. I know God has a purpose in this. I don't understand it. It doesn't make sense to me. But I do know that God has brought this in my life. And so I embrace this. Not that I'm enjoying this, but I embrace it by faith. Because I'm trusting God, knowing that he is going to be with me. He's going to bring me through this. He's going to teach me things. He's going to do things that I'm not even thinking about. That is going to be for his glory and for my good. So we embrace providence. And I have four things I want to say about providence in our attitude towards providence. Firstly, providence is but the outworking of God's decree or God's sovereign will. That is the things that God has purposed from all eternity. If you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians 1, and there's one text we'll look at. Ephesians 1. And Paul, he's eulogizing God's grace, God and his grace. You think of a eulogy when you go to a funeral, and there's a eulogy given where the person, someone stands up and speaks about the deceased and speak about all the good things that they did and the things that they meant to this one and that one. Well, Paul is given a eulogy of God's grace. And he begins in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And then he speaks about how God has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. You see, that's God's decree. God' purpose, His plan. You see, we're, we're creatures of God. God does things according to his his decree. But notice down here in, in verse 11, it says, and Paul is saying a lot of glorious things, which we don't really have time to get into, but verse 11 he says, In whom also we were made a heritage, and notice this phrase, having been foreordained according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his will. The purpose of him who works, that is, who brings about all things, everything. God brings about all things in this world, but he does it, the counsel of his will. So all the things that happen in this world is an unfolding of what God has decreed. It comes out in providence. We see it unfold in his providence. So providence is God bringing to pass what he has decreed. He brings it to pass in time and history. So that's what providence is, and that's what we need to understand when we look at our lives. Who is the president of the United States? God determined that. The governor of your state, of my state, God determines that. Your parents, when you would be born, where you would be born, God determines that. In Acts 17, it speaks about how God... He Of one blood, that is, of one man, he made to dwell on the face of the earth, all races or ethnicities of people, having determined the bounds and the seasons of our habitation. I kind of messed that verse up, but is in Acts 17. I'm going to read the verse here, so let's get it clear. I didn't want to dwell on it for the sake of time, but in Acts 17... This is referring to God's providence. Paul is speaking to these Greek philosophers, or not necessarily Greek, but these most likely Athenians in Athenia. These philosophers. And they have an altar to an unknown God. And Paul tells them about the God who made the world. You see, these philosophers, you know what philosophers do? You know what they do? They solve problems by looking inside their own heads for the answer. And Paul says you need to look up around you and see that there's a great God who made all things. And stop looking inside your own head. Verse 24, the God that made the world and all things therein, he being Lord of heaven and earth, dwells not in temples made with hands, neither is he served by men's hands as though he needed anything. Seeing he himself gives life to all and breath in all things. And here's the verse that I was quoting. And he made of one, that is of Adam, Every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed seasons, that is when they will be born, and the bounds of their habitation, the boundaries of their dwelling, that they should seek God if perhaps they might feel after him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him... We live and move and have our being. And then he quotes one of the poets. The point here is is that God has determined when we would live, where we would live. You think of the great Roman Empire. Where is the Roman Empire now? It's gone. It had its season. You think of Alexander the Great. You think of all these empires. You think of Nazi Germany. Where are they now? Gone, And so, and peoples that live, why were you born at the time that you were born? God determined that. He determined this is his providence. Now, I want you to turn with me to, to the Gospel of John, chapter, chapter 9, the Gospel of John, chapter 9, excuse me. Because maybe some of us don't think often in terms of God's providence. But I want us to... And here we have an incident here. Verse 1 of Jesus. John chapter 9 beginning in verse 1. And as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Now stop and think about this. This man was blind. He's a man but he was born blind. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned? That this man, or this man or his parents, that he should be born blind. So right away, the disciples had this misconception that if bad things happen to people, it's because somebody sinned. Right? Because the question is, who sinned? that this man was born blind? His parents? And notice Jesus answered. Jesus answered, Neither did this man sin, nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest. Jesus is not saying they were not sinners. What Jesus is saying, the man isn't blind because his parents sinned. Or, because the man sinned himself. That's not the reason why the man was born blind. The reason why the man was born blind is that the works of God should be made manifest in him. That's why he was born blind. Before the man was born, God had a purpose for that man. You see, that's God's decree, what God Purpose, And in God's providence, that decree was unfolded in this man coming into this world in the state of blindness. He was born blind in God's providence to the parents that he has. Now, we won't read the rest of the passage, but Jesus heals the man. And the man goes before the religious leaders and they see that this man is healed. His parents see that the man is healed. And the man is telling them, look, I don't really know who this man is, but I know that all I know is I was once blind, but now I see. And these religious leaders, they were envious of Jesus. And remember what we learned in the previous hour, Jesus, he fixes What's wrong with this world? Everything that is wrong with this world, and this is a fallen world. It's a sinful world. And one day, Jesus is going to reverse all these things. But here, this man was born blind in God's providence for the purpose of that day when that man would encounter Jesus. That's why he was born blind. He was born blind so that Jesus would heal him. And manifests the work of God in the life of that man. You may say, well, well, why could God use people like that? Ah, we're going to get into questions like that on our next point. But you see here, that blindness was because of God's decree and in his providence. God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform. And so you think about your lies, brethren. And also another passage in Exodus chapter 4, uh, verse 10. Exodus 4, verse 10. Well, let's look at that one briefly. Exodus 4, verse 10. This is when God had called Moses to lead the children of Israel. And God wanted Moses to go to Pharaoh and to speak to Pharaoh. And Moses said... I'm not a good speaker, Lord. I'm not cut out for this. And God says, Moses, I will be with your mouth. And in Exodus 4, verse 10, we read, And Moses said unto Jehovah, O Lord, I am not eloquent, neither hitherto, nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and of a slow tongue. And Jehovah said to him, Who hath made man's mouth? Or who makes man dumb? That is not uneducated, but dumb, meaning that he can't speak. Who makes a man dumb that he can't speak? Or deaf? Or seeing? Or blind? Is it not I, Jehovah? You see, God takes that responsibility. God is the one that does these things it's not the devil it's god god said i'm the one that make a man dumb what he can't speak or deaf or seeing Or in other words i am in control of all these things moses and i will be with your mouth i can help you moses because i am the lord and i control all these things now these what the old writers would say, are hard truths. You say, oh man, that's really a tough one to swallow. But the fact is, God's providence, He's in control of all things. It is a mystery, brethren. We cannot predict it, God's providence. We cannot interpret God's providence. You're gonna, no man can sit down and try to figure out the providence of God. You would have to be God to figure that out. You can't figure it out. Now, we can speculate. We can kind of think maybe this could be, and we cannot change God's providence. So when we're making plans, obviously it's becoming more and more increasingly obvious that there's no ground for boasting about what's going to happen. We must have this readiness to embrace the providence of God. Now, second point. We must remember what we deserve. You must remember what you deserve. And this will help us deal with some of these hard and difficult things. Because this will keep us from thinking that God is indebted to us that God is obligated to do what we ask. Or to think, well, I've been a good Christian. I've been a good husband. I've been a good wife. We've been good parents. We've been a faithful church. We prayed so much. And God should give us. It's not fair. I mean, we may not come out and say these things. But we can feel that frustration. You see, this will keep us humble and grateful and from having hard thoughts about God when we remember what we deserve. Turn with me to Job chapter 1. And I think this is most likely the things that really explain Job's response. Because Job... He lost a lot, very quickly. It didn't happen gradually. It was radical, and it was a lot, and it was very quick. But I want us to see Job's response. And Job responds as a man who recognized that he doesn't deserve those things that God had given him. And he responds accordingly. Now, if you're familiar with the story of Job, verse 1 of Job 1, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and this man was perfect. It doesn't mean he was sinless, but he was like complete or consistent or blameless man, and upright, and one that feared God and turned away from evil. So we will look upon Job and say, Job was a good man. You think of good men, good women in a, comu- in a community. That's a good man. He's honest. He doesn't cheat people. He treats his family well. He provides for his family. He gives to those that are in need. Job was that kind of a man. And then without reading all of the details here in the chapter, in this chapter we see that Job loses his children. They all They were in a house having a birthday party and the house collapsed upon him, and all his children died. had about ten of them. He was a, I guess, a farmer in the agrarian culture. He lost his cattle, his herd, his crops. He lost his wealth. He lost his children. He lost all those things. And then notice verse 20 of chapter 1. Then Job arose, and he rent his robe. That's a sign of grief. He shaved his head, fell down upon the ground, and worshipped. He fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away, Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Now think about what Job did. Here's a man, his heart is broken. And I'm sure we've all experienced grief. And and I could tell you that I felt so weighed down and so dealing with something that was very heavy on my heart that literally I could not stand up. I sat down in a chair and I ended up laying on the floor because that was the most appropriate, that's what I felt like doing. I felt so weak, so depleted of energy and strength and so devastated. I mean, I didn't just fall. I kind of gradually went down, down, and then I was on the floor. And all I could say on the floor, and say, oh, God, help me. That's all I could say. Now, I'm sure I'm not the only one. We've all experienced grief. And here, when you felt this type of grief and this heaviness and a broken heart, here, he rins his clothes, he shaves his head, he falls to the ground, and all he could do is worship. What Job could do at that point, you know what people, when people in... In the world, they say, oh, my God, right? But they're not really worshiping God. They're just shocked and they're surprised because they don't know what else to say. That's what people say when they are suddenly taken aback or in a desperate situation. But here, Job, he falls down and he thinks about God. And Job thinks, naked, I came into the world. Naked I shall return. God has given me all these things. And God has taken them away. And all I have is God. I have God. And not that having God is less than what he had before. But he recognized that God is who he needs. Only God can help me. No one can help me now only God could help me and he says blessed be the name of the Lord Job knows that God is righteous God is good Job is not worthy of all these things he received from the hand of the Lord and Job brings these truths these things that he knows about God to help him in his grief and he looks to God to sustain him and help him at this time of grief and he says, oh, Lord, blessed be your name. Lord, I don't understand it. I don't understand this. But, Lord, I know you're good. But I don't understand why. But, Lord, blessed be your name. And in a sense, Job is crying. out. Job is saying, Lord, I know I don't deserve these things. But, oh, God, help me. Help me. You see, Job, help me. And then the, the devil was involved in this, and, a, and, and God allowed the devil to do these things, as you read. And, but I don't want to get into another sermon. <laughs> but here, now the devil comes back and says, ah, afflict this body, then Job will curse you. And then, and then God allowed the devil to do those things to Job, and Job was afflicted in his body. Verse 7 of chapter 2. So Satan went forth from the presence of Jehovah and smote Job with sore boils from the sole of his foot to his crown, that is to his head. He took him, that is Job, a potsherd to scrape himself therewith, and he sat among the ashes. Then said his wife unto him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Renounce God and die. You see, Job's wife was like people in the world. And this doesn't mean, well, I don't cast a lot of judgment on her. But it was a very bad situation. But it was bad advice and it was sinful what she told Job to do. And she's saying, look, Job, you've been serving God for many years. And look what's happening to you. Job, this is not fair. This is not right. Are you going to continue to hold on to your integrity? Are you going to continue to serve God? Serving God, look what happened to you, Job. God is not righteous. God is not good, Job. And how can you believe in him any longer, Job? You're so miserable now. Just... Curse God and die and forget about this, Job. How long can you go on like this? You know, that's how people in the world would speak. That's what they say. How can I serve a God that would allow the Twin Towers to come now? Or would allow the coronavirus? Or would allow terrorism? Or would allow this? Or would allow the other? How can we? You know, and we hear that argument so much. And this is what Job's wife is saying to him. Now notice Job's response. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speak. What? Job is saying, shall we receive good at the hand of God? And shall we not receive evil? And this word evil could speak of hardship, calamity, or difficulty. Not in terms of sin. God doesn't um, commit sin or that sense. But evil meaning Hardship and difficulty, that is, the loss of his children, the loss of his wealth, etc. Job is saying, what? And what does Job understand about him and his relationship to God? All the good things we receive from God, we don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil, that is, difficulty and hardship? And all this did not Job sin with his lips. Job did not sin with his lips. Job was mindful of his unworthiness. You know, we celebrate the Lord's table this morning. Jesus died for us, his people. But who did he die for? His enemies. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for us because we deserved it. In fact, he didn't deserve to die because he is righteous. And so we are in no position to demand, to challenge, to criticize, to judge God if he brings difficulty and hardship in our lives. Because what we deserve, we deserve hell. The wages of sin is death. We deserve hell. That's what we deserve. Psalm 103 says, He has not dealt with us after our iniquities, nor rewarded us according to our transgressions. God is abundant in mercy and loving kindness. And see, this is like a a, a bucket of cold water being thrown upon us. (laughs) What are you talking about? We deserve hell. We don't think, and I'm not saying us, we God's people, but most people in the world, and sometimes we can fall into this, but we need to remember, brethren, that God doesn't owe us anything. God doesn't owe us anything. Because we sin against a holy God, and God is just to send us to hell. He is righteous. And even the the attitude of having this resentment toward God and say, well, I don't like that. Well, that's another expression of our sin, and that's another expression of our ignorance of ourselves and of God. God is just. He is good. He is holy. He is righteous. Think of the Ten Commandments. You know what the Ten Commandments is all about? Love. It's all about love. It tells us how to love God and how to love our neighbor. It's all about love. And when we fail to do that, we expose ourselves to God's wrath. If you love God, don't take his name in vain. Don't make any graven images. Don't worship other gods. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. That's showing love to God. Love your neighbor? don't kill him, don't steal from him, don't commit adultery with his wife, don't cover the things that your neighbor has, don't bear false witness against your neighbor. Then we also have the commandment, honor your father and mother, which is still honoring God through your parents. Now, what's wrong with those? Are they unreasonable? No, it's all about love. It tells us how to love. And when we fail to do this, we expose ourselves to God's wrath, to God's judgment. And so we were enemies while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. We must remember, brethren, what we deserve, so that when we experience things in our lives, remember, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Whatever my God ordains is right. And so we are not in the position to criticize and complain. And you hear people saying, I'm angry at God. Oh, man, I tell you, people that say those things, they don't know what they're saying. I'm angry at God. It's a mercy. You know, the fact that we are not in hell, And even if you're not a Christian here this morning, the fact that you are not in hell right now is a mercy from God. And it is a mercy that you can hear the good news of the gospel, to hear the hope of eternal life. That is a mercy toward God. But to say I'm angry at God and to criticize God, oh, you do not know what you say. You do not know what you say. Therefore, brethren... Remember what you deserve when you think about your plans and God's will. Thirdly, remember, we're speaking about God's providence, remember that God means it for good. Remember God means it for good. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. And as in hymn 21, God moves in a mysterious way his wonders to be formed. William Culper. He means it for good. And we know that to those who love God, All things work together for good. To those who love God, not to everyone, but to those who love God, God works all things. In Ephesians 1.11, he works all things after the counsel of his will, and he works all things together for good. Be it natural disaster, sickness, The actions of men toward us that affects us at the personal level, the national level, the state level. In terms of your job, your relations, your family relations, all these things. And you know the classic um, illustration of this Joseph, the life of Joseph. I'm not going to turn there because we know it so well. In, in Genesis 45 and in Genesis 50, you, this, this is a story where Joseph was one of many brothers and his brothers were envious of Joseph because his father favored Joseph and they didn't like that. And, and his brothers sold Joseph into slavery. These are sons of Jacob. And Joseph was sold into slavery and they took Joseph's coat and they dipped it in the blood of an animal so that their father could see it. So their father said, well, Joseph was attacked by a wild animal and he is no more. They let their father grieve. That's That was wicked. That was really bad. They let their father grieve over the loss of Joseph. And Joseph was in Egypt. Joseph experienced many other things that were not fair to him. It, was, it wasn't It was fair that his brothers sold him into slavery, but then he goes into Egypt and he gets a job working in the house of this commander named Potiphar. And his wife, Mrs. Potiphar, she accused Joseph of raping her or sexual harassment. And she was the one that had eyes for Joseph. So when all people were outside of the house, she grabbed Joseph by the garment and she says, come and lie with me. And Joseph, being an honorable and godly man, he says, no, I cannot do this wickedness and sin against God. And he fled, and she, and she held on to his coat, and then she went crying to her husband, he tried to rape me, this Hebrew. And he said, what? And then Joseph was put into prison unjustly, falsely accused. And then while Joseph was in prison, he was in prison with his fellow inmates, a butler and a baker. One of them were executed, that is the baker. But then the butler was released and Joseph said, hey man, when you get out, just remember me. Can Can you put in a good word because I really want to get out of here. The butler gets out and he forgets Joseph. But he remembers him two years later and then eventually it leads to joseph's release joseph comes out of prison god gives him these dreams he's had dreams all along and there was a famine coming to egypt and joseph was able to interpret this dream and speak to the pharaoh joseph ended up being second in command in all of egypt and there is famine back in israel and his brothers are coming to egypt because they hear that there's corn in egypt there's food in egypt and then they, that's when they meet their brother Joseph. And Joseph, when he learns who they are, he realizes that's my brothers, but they don't recognize him. And Joseph had to go in the back room and bawl his eyes out and then wipe the tears from his face and come out and put on that stern face because he didn't want them to know who he was. He saw his brother Benjamin he never saw before. I mean, this is a heart-wrenching, um, touching story. Which is true. then eventually Joseph's parent, his father comes out, his mother had died years before, and then Joseph eventually reveals himself and says, "I am Joseph." And his brothers did not know what to say. They were terrified. And Joseph said, "Don't be troubled, don't worry." Joseph had worked this all out, and God has showed him. at this point, Joseph said, You did not send me here. God sent me here. How can he say that? They sold him into slavery. They did it. That's what they did. But Joseph recognized that what they were doing is what God had purposed. And God used their actions to fulfill his purpose in the life in Joseph's life, that is his providence. So what these people did to him, his brothers, it was God using them to bring Joseph to Egypt. And what Mrs. Potiphar did to him, God used that to bring Joseph to the place of power. And what the butler did in all of these experiences, God said, You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good because God has sent me here to save many people alive. So Job, I mean, J- Joseph looks at all these things. You see, the providence of God. God meant all these terrible things that happened to me, God meant it for good. For good. What about your life today? What's happened to you in your life? Maybe as a child, as a young person, or what's going on now? And we can think a term of those people, and that's right, those people, they did this to me, and that's right, they did it, and it was bad, and it was sinful, But in God's purpose, it was all in God's providence. And remember, God doesn't owe us anything. And God has a purpose in that. And that's why I say none of us can explain that. These are very hard things. But God means it for good. He means it for good. That's why we need to embrace providence by faith. And, you know, people get close to this, people who are not Christians, they say, well, it was all meant to be. There's some truth to that. But they're not thinking about God's providence. They may be thinking about fate or other things, but God means it for good. And I'm not saying it just has to be tragedy. It can also be blessings and all these good things that too that comes from God you got a nice job living in a nice house eating good food you have people that love you all that has come to you by the hand of God it all comes from him so remember brethren when our plans when we've made plans and intentions and we look at how things unfold in our lives When it's very different from what we plan, remember that God means it for good. He means it for good. And the last thing I want to say is that we must remember that God loves you. I'm speaking to God's people. I can't say that if you're not a Christian. I can't say that well, God loves you in a different way, but in terms of Working all things together for good. I mean, this is really for the children. This is for God's people. God loves you. He loves you. God loves us, not because we have great potential, because we're nice people. God loves us because of who he is. Not because of who we are. God is love. God is love. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Who would do such a thing? That's inconceivable that you would give your dearly beloved child to die for a vicious enemy that hates you. So that vicious enemy can be redeemed. You offer up your dearly beloved child, your son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The table that we celebrated bespeaks that. He loves us, brethren, because of who he is. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. Yeah, the world would be a better place if we all loved one another. But the problem is we don't know how to love one another. We we don't know how to love apart from God. And we learn how to love when we come to know God through Jesus Christ. Then we can love one another. But 1 John chapter 4, I'll start at verse 7. Verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loves is begotten of God and knows God. He that loves not knows not God, for God is love. Herein was the love of God manifested in us, that God hath sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, this word propitiation, even Pastor Nichols mentioned in his prayer, is to pacify wrath. Propitiation, that baby that's crying, uncontrollable, you stick that pacifier in the mouth, and then the baby starts sucking on it, they're they're comforted, they're they're pacified. But God is not like a baby. But that's just to help us to understand this term propitiation. You see, God is perfect in all of his character and in all of his ways. And when God has wrath, it is a... It is a righteous wrath. It is perfect wrath. And justice must be served. That's why we have that sense of justice in ourselves. Now, here's a slogan. The slogan fits when it pertains to God, but I'm not trying to get into other things. You've heard this before. No justice, no peace, all right? Taking it out of that context, all right? No justice, no peace in terms of God. The soul that sinneth shall surely die. There can be no peace with God until our sins are dealt with. And justice must be served. And that's what propitiation is all about. Jesus offered himself on the cross as a propitiation for our sins. That is, Jesus, when, when God looks upon us in our own persons, there is wrath. God looks upon us and he sees their sin. And this person must be judged because their sin. He is righteous. But Jesus takes the sins, all of our sins upon himself. And Jesus says, here I am, I will bear the wrath on their behalf. I will absorb your anger and your justice. I will endure your wrath on their behalf. So he takes our sins upon himself. And that's what was going on on the cross. He endured and absorbed the wrath of God in his soul. Upon the cross, he offered himself to pacify, to appease the righteous justice of God, to have it unleashed upon him that he would embrace and absorb it into himself, enduring God's wrath for our sins. And therefore, we read, and therefore, in, in Romans 5, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Then God is at rest because justice has been served. Our sins have been dealt with. And that's what John is referring to, how he is the propitiation for our sins. And that's what it means to believe upon the Lord Jesus. And if you're here and you've not believed upon Jesus, you know what you're saying? You're going to stand before God in your own person. It's like someone going into a court. Without an attorney, they're going to defend themselves in court. I will do my, I don't need an attorney, I will defend myself. Whereas a lawyer, he knows all the ins and outs of the law. And that's you, when you're standing before God apart from Jesus, there's no way you can stand before God and be just and be accepted. And to think that your good is going to outweigh your bad, oh no. God doesn't accept that good. That good can never measure up to what God requires. And in fact, it's an insult to Jesus Christ because God sent him to the cross to die for sinners. There's no different way of salvation apart from Jesus Christ. This is the only way to be accepted before God. This is the only way of salvation that God has provided. Christ has been set forth as a propitiation for our sins, and it's only when you come and humble yourself by faith, repenting from your sins, confessing your rebellion, submitting yourself to King Jesus, that you will be saved. He is the propitiation. But we're talking about the love of God, right? What does this have to do with the love of God? Well, some say, God is love, and therefore there's no need for Jesus to go to... this All all this blood stuff, and all this atonement, and the blood of Jesus. And, I mean, this is very repulsive. I mean, I am a cultured, educated individual. I'm not going to submit my mind to thinking I have to believe in some man that was nailed to the cross in this gruesome death, and somehow that's the way of salvation. You see, that's the arrogance of man. But here... This is the display of God's love because God so loved us in order for God to remain true to himself, for God to remain just and righteous, and because he loves us, how can God save a rebel, save a sinner, save a person who is wicked and defiled and polluted with their sins? How can God save a person like that and bring them to heaven and still remain true to himself? Is his son, the Lord Jesus. And because of the love that's in God, he provides the atonement. He provides the propitiation. You see, brethren, God's love. He spared not his own son. I'm speaking to the Christian now. He spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him freely give us all things? Brethren, how can we ever question whether or not God loves us? That's why we do this to remember. We do this to remember. Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. This is my blood, the blood of the new covenant which is shed for many. Do this in remembrance of me. This is the greatest display of the love of God. Jesus Christ, what he did in bringing our sins with him to the cross. The greatest display of love of God is not having a nice job, nice home, nice family. All these things are good. And God is gracious and merciful to give us these things. But those are not the marks of the evidences of God's love. It's in the giving of his son. But since he gave his son, he will give us everything we need to bring us safely to glory. He will not leave us. He will not forsake us. And so let's bring this all together here, brethren. Our plans and the will of God. And when we think about, we factor in the providence of God, we must remember that whatever is going on in our lives, whatever the outcome of our plans, we know that, We don't deserve, we must remember what we deserve from God. We must remember that God means it for good and that God loves us. He will not forsake you, brother or sister. If God is bringing you through difficult times, you can rest assured he's going to be with you. He's going to give you the grace that you need. He's going to teach you more about himself. And you're going to learn more about God than you ever knew before because you've gone through that difficulty if you're walking with him by faith and he's doing it because he loves you he's not trying to make you miserable but he's making you good and to make you good is to make you holy and to make you like his son and God uses trials and tribulations to perfect us and to make us more like his son If it was true of, since it was true of the Lord Jesus, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience through suffering, how much more is it for his people? Brethren, remember these things when you think about your plans. God is bigger than our plans. God knows what's best for us. And for the child of God, we're not losers. Yes, your plan blew up in your face. Everything is a win-win situation. Because all things, God is working together for our good and for his glory. It's all for his glory and for our good. Yes, even the bad things. Remember Joseph. Remember Job. Remember the man born blind. And you look at your life and look at the opportunity, the opportunity that you have to glorify God in your life by your response and your attitude to God's providence. May God give us all grace to grow in faith, to walk by faith, and not by sight. And I pray that if there's any here who has not come to the Lord Jesus Christ, however young, however old you may be, I don't know everybody in your whole situation here, but this is our only hope, and this is the only way to live in this world. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ, confessing, forsaking your sins, Because the kingdom of God is here. And one day the kingdom will come in all its fullness. And we want you to be in that kingdom in all of its glory. In the new heavens and the new earth wherein dwells righteousness. Where there will be no more sin. No more trials and tribulations and sufferings and disappointments. That will come when Jesus Christ shall return. But you can only get there only through Jesus Christ. There's no other way, there's no other name given among heaven, among men whereby we must be saved. Come and believe upon Jesus, turn from your sins, and know the joys of blessings of salvation in him. May God be pleased to bless his word to the salvation of the lost and to the strengthening of the faith of his own. Let's pray.